Hello, listeners, and welcome to today's episode of Blind Insights. Now, of course, some of you know that I grew up on a farm. Probably most of you do. I've talked about it in the podcast a few times. And when I grew up on a farm, I always wore boots because on a farm, there's snakes and horses and cows and crap to trip over and pieces of barbed wire and all sorts of terrible things when you're a blind kid. And boots were good. And earlier this year, I realized I miss boots. Boots are good. I don't want to wear shoes anymore. Shoes are yucky. So summer is Birkenstocks. From now on, the rest of the year will be boots. And then I did the normal thing we all do now, and I dived down the rabbit hole. And at the bottom of the rabbit hole, one of the coolest boot-making companies I found was a brand called Parkhurst Brand. And for context, they're dearer than R.M. Williams. So they are serious boots, but much better made than my R.M.s. So today... We're going to talk to another person who, like Tim and I, has changed career and who is now doing something he really loves. And I'm going to get to nerd out all about boots. But I think you'll all find it interesting because it's about craft and meaning and doing things on a human scale. So today, I hope you all really enjoy meeting Andrew Svisco and talking about his brand, Parkhurst Brand. The ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make and could just as easily make differently. David Graeber, 1961 to 2020. Welcome to Blind Insights, a podcast we call A Haphazard Guide to Living, hosted by philosophy master David Olney and myself, a philosophy student, Tim Whiffen. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the actual episode. Tim isn't here today because we're recording this on a weekday, so he has to be at work being a grown-up, whereas I've already kind of been a grown-up and talked to America for two hours for work and now get to do a fun podcast. So, listeners, please welcome to the podcast, Andrew Svisco from Parkhurst Brand. Hello, Andrew. Hi, David. How are you? I am very well. Like, I hope that intro made you smile that I've returned to being a child and liking boots. Of course, of course, yeah. I'm smiling right now. <laughs> were you a boot guy when you were a little human? You know, not really. Not really. I, I probably became a boot guy probably when I started going to college my freshman year, actually. <laughs> ah, so what was your first pair of good boots in college? Well, you know, I spent a pretty penny and you know, I, I used the term pretty penny quite loosely being, you know, a college student at the time, given the context, mm. <laughs> about 150 US dollars on a pair of uh, leather boots that had some lining on the inside. And uh, I thought I was all ready to go here. You know, being from I'm in Buffalo, New York, so we get a lot of precipitation, a lot of snow, a lot of rain, a lot of salt. So I needed something that, you know, was going to be good, right. Mm -hmm. And on my campus, when I was going to school, it was always brutal. It was it was long walks and really frigid temperatures everywhere, especially when it was snowing. You know, there's there's just always slush, and not like you know, it's like that that gray, dirty, you know, kind of stone filled, debris filled slush. You know, like really. I'm nasty. glad I'm blind in Australia because that sounds terrible for navigating uh, with a cane. It's not fun to walk through, that's for sure. But yeah, I needed something that was gonna was gonna help me get through that. You know, at that point, I was you know I bought these boots that were you know again 150 bucks, and I thought to myself, oh geez, well these got to be good boots. They they're you know they're nice. And I started wearing them for about two weeks, and 
uh, unfortunately, like the inside, the liner came undone from the sewing and it started to peel out and upwards and the uppers <laughs> were kind of peeling upwards and things started coming loose left and right. I thought, ah, geez, well, it, it looks like this is, uh, this pair is not going to work out, right? <laughs> so Then you had to find money again and do research. I know. Yeah. Right. I mean, I was just in, in, in 150 bucks for a college student. Like, That's a lot wow, of money. Fine. That was a lot of money, but yeah. you know, yeah, you know at that point, that kind of planted the seed in my head about, huh, well, this is interesting. I just dropped what seemed to be a lot of money <laughs> on something and uh, didn't really work out too well. So yeah, you're right. I mean, I had to go I'd start researching boots, right? And, and go down that rabbit hole and see what I could find. <laughs> yep. And it, so what were you studying when you were at college? What was the original plan for life? Oh, the original plan was physical therapy. I'm really into like, I was and I still am to an extent today, but I was really into exercise science. And that okay. was like the path when becoming a physical therapist. So yep. about like the end of my sophomore year and wasn't feeling it. I was really like, you know, they, they started showing me the courses I'd have to take and the stuff that, you know, I, I'd have to do. And, you know, it just didn't really, I guess I kind of, kind of lost its allure to me. But I mean, at the same time, you know, when you're young, you're, you're you're looking at a million different things all at once right you're constantly yeah. changing your mind constantly changing what you're doing and and i think ultimately that kind of is reflected in a, a little bit of our lives as we get older too we may not change as often but i still think you know some of us do change but anyways getting back to my, my story here but it, you know by the time the end of my sophomore year came around you know the other thing too is like i found out i was really bad at science classes like physics yeah <laughs> physics and chemistry oddly enough math statistics calculus that stuff like was almost second nature to me and i did really well at that in college but for whatever reason i couldn't i couldn't crack you know, chemistry and physics and i did very poorly in both classes and my gpa sunk to below what the curriculum needed i think they wanted like a three five or a three six at the time and i was underneath that by the time these classes had their way with me <laughs> so you really and, had to change direction you had to pivot towards your talent and go well look if i'm good at it maybe i can also learn to like it so how to right. move towards the maths how to move towards the statistics exactly so i at that point i switched my major to uh finance i had the opportunity to work with numbers more right which is mm -hmm. which is what i love I enjoyed doing. So I graduated on time. I think I only had to take like one science course over the summer or things like nutrition ended up getting an A. So, you know, but nutrition for, for me at least was relatively easy, but and it's good for life uh, in general. It is right. You know, I graduated on time and I, I had always had an interest in investing and in the stock market and venture capital and, and those types of things that kind of led me to my bank job where I started out as a mortgage-backed security trading analyst. And I was there for a year. And then I got bumped up to a position in the bank where I was a stock trading analyst. And I was in there for about, I want to say, four, four and a half years or so. And yeah, I mean, it was cool for it was cool to be in that environment because i wanted to be in an environment where it was it was fast paced you know we got i got to work with numbers i got to work with people too like i was yeah. always talking to dozens of different people every day 
you know, almost, <laughs> almost kind of like it is now. But, you know, I got to do what I kind of wanted to do back then. So ultimately, <laughs> you know, I was like maybe three years into my position as a stock analyst. And I thought to myself, because at that point, I really started going down that rabbit hole we spoke about, of, <laughs> of right? And just like seeing what's out there and learning as much as I could. But at the same time, I had in the back of my head this instance where like I'd spent all this money as a college student on this pair of boots that I thought was going to last me like a good couple of years. And after a couple of weeks, they started falling apart. So that just kind of, you know, was in the back of my head at that time, too. But yeah, I mean, in my position as a stock analyst, I mean, we were kind of known for working just stupid long hours. And at least, you know, to us, they were they were long. A, a typical work week for us would easily be 65, 70 hours, you know, in front of our computers, which, you know, four, five, six computer screens. So, wow. you know, it kind of on your your eyes, right? Like your head, yeah. like it wasn't uncommon to get eye strain, headaches all the time. But at that point, you know, we were there were even some weeks where we were approaching, you know, the 75, 80 hour mark. And I was like, I said this to somebody last week, but, you know, I, I told them, you know, I was like, once you get past that 75 hour work week, you become a different person. Yeah, you, you, you like, don't have time to be you. You don't have time to recover. You know, last yeah. year between finishing my master's and holding down two marketing jobs, I was at about mm -hmm. that for six months. And yeah, it was a salient it. lesson to never do it again. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it was brutal. I mean, I I got to be honest, like the it was one of those things where it's like the paycheck was nice. Yeah. But at the end of the day, like I just grew further and further apart from friends and family. And basically, you know, I was I was distancing myself from a lot of the important things and people in my life. So anyways, that's what that was. and. Like I said, around that third year or so, I had this idea to kind of look into like making my own boot or like even maybe taking it a step or two further and like making a boot company out of it, which was what led me to one of the oldest shoe factories in America, which was conveniently located like a half an hour away from where I lived in Buffalo. <laughs> so you could so. actually go and visit and see it and see this just isn't a oh, pipe dream. You can see how this is potentially tangible. This was exactly, it was, it was definitely potentially ta uh, tangible here. So like, you know, I got excited from that, right? Like I would think anybody would, right? You know, so then I started thinking like a little bit of a bigger picture here. I'm thinking, you know, well, it's like I'm working my ass off at my job right now. And it's like I'm having, you know, little to no free time at all. You know, mm. at that point, you can relate when you mentioned working your two marketing jobs plus getting your master's. You know, Saturday and Sunday come and they just fly by. So, you know, I started developing, you know, just kind of this amateur business plan and idea to see like if I could even sell boots and like what I would make different about them and, how I would focus on fit, feel, materials, and, you know, try to make them in the States as much as possible. So eventually I pitched that plan to this factory here, and I was extremely fortunate and extremely grateful to have them take me on as a client because they produced for, 
many other clients and they produced for some of the biggest brands in the country and a couple of really large global brands as well. So the fact that they were even giving me, you know, their time or attention was like, you know, wow. <laughs> like yeah. I was like super humble. And here's one of those moments where you can see how transitions often work, that a part of the life we've been living, so all your abilities with numbers, your understanding of the market, your understanding of investment means, you know, your business plan would have been a lot more cohesive than a boot enthusiast who had not studied finance and not worked in the jobs you'd had. So you already had a bit of a Venn diagram well, happening here between the two worlds. I would say to an extent, you know, I mean, like, it, I, I, I'm not perfect at coming up with business plans, nor was my business plan perfect. I mean, like, it was quite amateur. But mm. I think that, you know, what you mentioned, you know, you, you hit a couple of good points, like I, given my finance background and numbers and investment type of background here and it's not that extensive but given the little experience i have it did help me in developing this i I talked to a lot of people who are really into boots and you know they're boot enthusiasts and shoe enthusiasts and you know a a lot of what comes up in our conversations is you know they want to start their own shoe or boot brand and um you know there's a there's a difference between really liking shoes and boots and then actually going and starting a company around it you really need to know your costs and you really need to know your price point and i know it sounds very cliche but when you first start out in business you know you you have a a projection of like what something might be for example your costs so you try to guess like you know what it's gonna take to get this thing up and running the first couple of years right Mm. But yeah, I mean, it it does take a lot of planning and it is quite investment heavy, which was the reason why, you know, I, I tried to work so many hours uh, at the bank in order to save up to try to do something like this. And, you know, I I mentioned the same thing last week to this other guy too. I lived at home pretty much all during my twenties, literally so that I could save up to do something like this. I never went to someplace like Kickstarter or I never, you know raised millions of dollars through venture capital or anything like that, or took on multiple investors. So like, I, I mean, I kind of did it the old fashioned way, which I understand is not very glamorous, but you know what? It makes for a great story because again, you, you just kept refining the idea, refining the pitch and saving the cash. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, pretty, pretty much that's, that's what I had to do. So, you know, fast forward a little while and, you know, I'm, I'm at that, four, four and a half year mark, you know, at, at the bank being, you know, in my, in my analyst position. And we are, and we had already spent time developing prototypes and doing product development and finishing our first production run to introduce. Ultimately, I think it was November of 2018. So yeah, I mean, you know, one thing just kind of led to another and I started getting a couple wholesale orders and started selling some boots i mean i was i was driving a you know 10 or 12 year old buick at the time so i was selling boots out of the back of my buick (laughs) just like anybody you know who took an interest or i came across who was a friend of a friend or a colleague or a coworker. it was kind of cool time i actually quit my day job to do this i mean i had sold boots to a pretty decent amount of people and my office. <laughs> so it was kind of 
like that's cool what style and i'd show up the next day we'd go out to my car during lunch and you know just give them their boots but yeah it was um yeah but at least you can do that like walking your your colleagues down to the car and giving them a shoebox at least is it's not the kind of normal weird behavior we think of in banks yeah people are going to laugh at this rather than get worried which is cool like hey yeah he's got a boot company that's awesome as opposed to like insider trading or some other weird thing Right, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you shouldn't really trust anybody who invites you out to their car and uh, asks for, you know, thousands of dollars to buy a stock for you. That's for no, <laughs> that's no, no. Sensible price for a good pair of boots. So what was the first boot you were selling out of the back of the car? Like, what was it? The Delaware was the original model? Well, that's the oldest one I can sort of find reference to online. So- Sure, sure. So actually, the first and the oldest, uh, the, the Delaware was the second. And okay. The first and the oldest one was the Allen in Color 8 Chrome XL. Oh, so and you went hardcore from day one. You went the irresistible boot for your first model. Oh, man, irresistible. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I wanted to stick with something plain and a nice, rich, burgundy type of color that could be worn with, you know, pretty much any pant color or pant yep. type. So. You know, looking back at that, you know, it's like I wanted to try to make it kind of an older school kind of aesthetic, too. So I put a leather sole on it and a leather heel, which, you know, I quickly came to realize, you know, it was was great. Yeah, maybe not. Right. (laughs) In some place like Buffalo. But um, I wanted to give it that heritage type of vibe. And, And to do that, I thought, at least in my opinion at the time, that one of the ways to do that was to slap a leather sole on this thing. Yep. But yeah, practicality wise wasn't uh, wasn't too great. <laughs> no, so. it was one of those things that if those people just put those boots away until summer or holidays and wore them somewhere <laughs> yeah. else, they were ready. The, yeah. <laughs> but the well, Delaware did a Danite sole. So okay. you know, that was... Well, you yeah. learned quickly. So another thing we can say, when you transition, the trick is do things, analyze, reassess, and alter if you need to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you know what? You know, four and a half or so years into this right now, actually coming up on five, I mean, I'm still shifting gears, right? Like, I'm yeah, still changing. learning all the time. Yep. It's something that, like, you're going to always always have to do i feel like no matter what and it's you know it's it's like adapt or die type of thing yeah um, i think it's also people enjoy going on journeys with other people so if you make an amazing product but they can see that you're trying new things experimenting with different materials going well how would that look how would that work and if it works oh, well well there's a second batch if it works not as well there's only one batch but those things yeah. for the real you know collector nerds out there become collector's items like those originally sure. burgundy allens with leather soles, there's going to be some yeah. people who own them who are going, you know, they're the ones I don't wear, not because they're slippery, but because <laughs> that's where it all started. Yeah. Well, you know, look, I'm just happy to provide a, a, a decent quality product to uh, to people who really admire that type of product. So, <laughs> but yeah, I, I like your point. It's a very good one. So the next big drama, of course, for you, like so many people that came along, was Along came a pandemic, right at the point where it must have been feeling like things were going to be okay. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Tell me about it. You know, that was in – I feel like just so much happened. When was this pandemic? It it was in, like, 2020, right? Yeah, basically March 2020 was when we got 
lockdown here in Australia. Yeah. Like our big moment was a cruise ship came ashore in Sydney, disgorged oh. a thousand people into Sydney, and two days later, COVID was here. Oh, geez. Yeah. Well, that's a surefire way to spread it, I'm sure. But, oh, yeah. But, yeah. I mean, look, 2020. Yeah. I mean, like, so like I said earlier, like my, I, I launched and it was about October, November-ish of, of 2018. So at that point, like, you know, like on paper, that was my first official quote unquote year of business, mm. even though 30 or 45 business days or something yeah. like that. So really, you know, 2019 came along and that's where I finally got to see a lot of the market and and to see like, you know, if there was going to be potential and what that would that potential would look like. Mm. So then I finally get a solid year's worth of business under my belt. And, you know, two months or three months into the next year, which is 2020, you know, then everything just kind of stops, right? Yeah, it was it was very uncertain and tumultuous and um you know i had we we got locked down here pretty good i mean i think we were locked down probably right through the end of the year of 2020 i i could be wrong like everything kind of seems like it all became a blur yeah yeah but you know like my my main factory that i uh with whom i was working was here in western new york like you know about half an hour or so outside of buffalo so i was still submitting you know orders and and in sampling and development to them, you know, every month, right up until when they closed, unfortunately, that ended up being in February, maybe it was March of 2022. So that was probably the biggest blow to Parkhurst that I've ever had to endure, because despite my constant submission of of orders and restocks to the factory, you know, there were just bigger forces at play here i mean you know yeah. we had i chain crisis we had the, the labor crisis i mean we have I, there, I talk to people every day who would argue that both are still an issue as of today yeah it's the main better? reason it's the main reason for our level of inflation now and that is things aren't moving the way they used to and lockdown time gave people a chance to rethink hey i'm going a bit stir crazy here do i want to go back to the same job or do i want to change so, yeah, we are sure. certainly not out of that. And if we look at the numbers out of China, there are some estimates that they are 50% of 2019 production. Vietnam's yeah. got factories coming online at warp speed. Turkey's got factories coming online at warp speed. The U.S. is yeah. building out Mexico at a rate on a par with industrial production in 1942 for war production. So the world is yeah. fundamentally altering. And if you're a yes. little boat on a big sea, it's an adventure. Yeah. It really is. And, you know, so, so, so the factory unfortunately ended up closing. And for me, it was really tough to watch and tough to go through because, you know, we had a, we had a ton of orders that were like right in the middle of being worked on. So we had a ton of work in process. And, and obviously, like I had a ton of investment in that factory as, as well, just doing development and purchase orders and, and production runs. So it was a pretty big hit. But perhaps one of the biggest things was it was just the people. Like I, it just, it sucked losing like that, you know, whatever connection we may have had as people, but it's just, there's something about, you know, these are the, these were the same people who like put their, their hard work and their sweat into helping me actually bring my designs to life and then also producing them on a production scale. Yeah. So 
they had a lot of time invested. They had a lot of effort invested and, and we all did. So it, it was sad to see them go under. But like I said before, you know, just it, it was a smaller factory uh, to begin with. And it was one of the few that were left here in the United States. I mean, yeah, I'd worked with a couple other factories in the States, in addition to the one in Western New York here. But they ended up going out of business themselves even before COVID, just because there's, you know, the whole other Just that end of industrialization. See, you yeah. guys hung on to industrialization a lot longer than we did here in Australia. So from what I can oh, okay. work out, we've only got like four companies that can make shoes at any scale. We've got RM Williams, Rossi, Redback, and I think they're called Baxter. And yeah, none of them are big players. They all have small niches. Well and that's all they can do with the imports rolling yeah. in. Yeah, I mean, well it becomes very tough because I mean, I, like I said I've worked with other factories here in the in the United States and one of the pillars of Parkhurst that I started with was the ability and the desire to make a boot as much as possible within the United States like manufactured here. And when it was working, it was working great, but you know, obviously, when it wasn't working, it all came to a screeching halt, right? Yeah. Some of the biggest things that I saw here in the States were a lot of these factories, they just simply didn't have the capital or the investment, really, to keep up with investing in their own factories. So, yeah. I mean, purchasing pieces of machinery that were going to help make a better quality product or maybe sewing machines that were going to help sew better. Yeah. There's so many details here that I, I think were part of kind of the manifestation of uh, what inevitably would happen with some factories. But like it's, you know, in, in manufacturing, like it's it's very tough to turn a profit and then have that profit sustain the manufacturing operation for, you know, the next few months or the next year or the next two mm. years because just the costs are just so high but you know it's then there's also you know the 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 cost of finding skilled labor yeah and i've worked with factories who tried to bring in immigrants who were looking to get their work visas uh to do like sponsorships like that mm. and you know that that worked a few times with the factories who i worked with but the very same people who were doing that wanted to go to school, which is which is fine, right? I mean, we yeah. all have different goals, right? But that unfortunately leads to high turnover. And then the senior people you have on the production line, they end up wanting to retire. Yeah. So COVID comes along, everybody gets locked down. Then it's like, well, it's a perfect you have storm. All the older popular. people retire, and the young ones Early. want to be at school. Like, you know, yeah. What would have been yeah. the average age? of the people working on the factory floor in the factory you're working with, you know, you know, they're in. Yeah. So it's a good question. Average age, I would probably say early fifties, late fifties, yeah. maybe. But having said, you know, with the few factories with whom I worked here in the States, you know, there were a really decent mix of young people and old people. I mean, there were people in their early 20s, mid 20s. There were people yeah. who were 75 and still hand sewing moccasins. Yeah, because <laughs> so. the job they loved. You know, it was interesting last yeah. night in preparation for today, I was listening to, you know, Trickers from the UK's uh, video about their factory. Yeah. And what was yeah. amazing with that is there were so many voices who were in their 50s or older 
but there were a couple mm-hmm. of mischievous sounding kids in their early 20s who were going, yeah, I really wasn't sure about this on my first day, but I love this because we make these beautiful things yeah. and we make them together. So it's one yeah. of those things we're in transition of going, hang on, we told so many young people, go to university, go work with data. Yeah, but actually yep. working yep. with your hands is immensely rewarding. And we're not telling people that. It is. I mean, look, it's been rewarding for me. And like I've said earlier, like just being in front of four or five, six computer screens for that many hours a week was just like, it just wasn't fulfilling. And, yeah. you know, I had this like, art curse in the back of my head. And it's like, you know, I, I kept seeing like just the time go by, like every yeah. month would go, like I have this immense amount of inaction in the back of my head that I kept kind of beating myself up for. Cause it's like, you know, the, the time is now like this, yep. this isn't just going to happen. You take the bull by the horns and you need to get this done and do it. Yeah. So that's more or less the mentality that I had, which pushed me to quit my day job. And I gave my manager my two week and it's kind of, it's kind of bad because they promoted me like a few months before I left. And it was the highest promotion I, I had in my working or in my, in my corporate career at the time. But it wasn't anything like hugely like massive, but for me, it was, it was pretty big. Yeah. So it kind of sucked to have to tell them like, yeah, well, you know, I'm out of here to make um, boots. Yeah. Here's my two week, but you know, it's not as if I didn't care about the team there either because like yeah, my job at the time, like our turnover was like 70, 80% within the first 12 months. Like it yeah. was very long hours. Like you, you know, wasn't too good for your health sometimes and we just saw a lot of people leave and yeah if after four years i was considered one of the senior guys there and it was me and like only two or three other guys who were the quote-unquote senior guys there yeah <laughs> after four like oh this is uh it's a brutal yeah. system and compare that to a factory where people are making things which some of us may think the repetitiveness is not for us but there's something meditative in doing something and getting better and better and doing no, it you're perfectly right. every time. But, but you're right. And, and and the thing is, is like, you know, that's kind of in my motto with Parkers is to kind of like do something better and better at every opportunity that I can. And, you know, my boots aren't perfect by any means. Like there's always improvement that could be made. But, you know, one of the biggest struggles that I had with manufacturing with like the two or three factories that were left in the States that that do this type of production business was, you know, the, the lack of some major capabilities. Yeah. You know, when I first started, I had to practically beg one of the factories I was working with to use something like a veg hand Ben's leather insole. Because like a lot of factories here were used to using like foam or, or, or some type of fiberboard as the insole and then putting something in on top of it. Yep. And like, it, that's not really what I wanted to do. Um, you know, another major thing that we had was adding in something as simple as a midsole. So a lot of, a lot of the factories I worked with, and again, there was only like two or three left in the country, even before COVID that would do this type of production. A, a lot of their sole stitching machines, the needles on them couldn't puncture through the welts plus the midsole plus the outsole. So all three layers. Yep. So there were results of that, you know, there were needles being broken left and right. So like, you know, the needle cost was getting pretty high for my production. <laughs> so yep. you know, we were going through literal parts of the machines like that. So, yep. you know, and then like when it comes to using like leather for the heel counters, well, a, a lot of the factories, they didn't have 
the proper heel molding machinery to mold leather like veg tan leather around the last the heel of a last yeah so you know we were using a lot of thermoselastic material to be used as the heel counters because it was really easy to work with in production yep. and we didn't have like our machines breaking from it as a result right yeah it, it, it was like you know the boots would get 75 80 percent there right yep. have this 20 25 percent of the boot that we couldn't or that i couldn't make the way i wanted to have it made and it became a real challenge because as a brand like you're getting emails from prospective customers looking for things that that 20 25 that you want to do you know you want it that way and you know the customer wants it yeah yeah and you can't deliver yeah. because and again this is what we're talking about with industrial degradation yeah the classic yeah. example is britain after world war ii all these machineries did war production. There was no investment money left. By the late 1960s, English design was fabulous, but British production was collapsing. Just oh. quite simply, the machines didn't work anymore. Yeah, and um, like I know it, it, it's a thing. And you know, yeah. I, I I try to explain this to to some people, and um, you know, they look at me like I have six heads. <laughs> no, because <laughs> they've never thought about how complicated it, it is to do things properly. It is. It is. So I, I started Parkhurst to set out to make a, a good quality, good looking boot here in the States. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, like I did it. But, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is when COVID came along, you know, this specific niche of the industry in the U.S. was very much on the decline, even leading up to COVID. But when COVID happened, you know, that's when I started to see a lot of my suppliers closed down. And, and I don't know if you heard about the production update I was posting on my website or if you followed it through 2022. I only um, found your boots this year when I got interested again. So when I ordered oh, my two pair of Allens, I had only been like yeah. going, ooh, for a week. <laughs> yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, you had the rust wax season yeah, spruce and, and the great, yes. So yeah. he, he knows his so, customers and his products. <laughs> but basically, like I had this... I had this production update on my website and I, and I, I tried to run it like a blog where after the factory here in Western New York closed down, I felt an obligation to my audience and to my customers to let them know what's going on and what I'm doing to keep Parkhurst moving forward. So, and I started that at about March or April of 2022 and I ran it through January of this year. Mm -hmm. And in that update, I, I, I mentioned to people that Due to the closure of 90% of my suppliers, with the, with the exception of a small handful of leather tanneries, there's no factories left in the United States to make my boots anymore. So I announced that I had to move the vast majority of production to Spain. And I was very hesitant to do it at first, and I was very worried that i was going to lose pretty much all of my customer base because you know i was it wasn't I what started... you set out to do and people had to no. be able to move with you and you hope people will move but and you hope yeah, you don't know but you don't know so i literally took whatever capital was left at that moment in time from parkers from all of these closures that i was going through with my suppliers in my factory and i invested it into um, spanish production and the Spanish production just happens to have another part of their company here in New York State. So it was kind of cool working with the people in New York and also working with the people in Spain who are the same companies. So we're able to get 
prototyping and development done at a pretty good rate. And we were able to finally get production up and running for Parkhurst. And and we got these first samples and, and I got these first samples and prototypes in. And I thought to myself, holy geez, like these things look absolutely incredible. But the thing though about them is that Spain is very well set up to produce footwear because a lot of their factories do volume for a lot of the bigger, more global footwear brands out there. Therefore, they have a lot of the machinery that can up make to date the... in a way the Americans weren't anymore. Exactly. So, yeah. but of course, by that time, the other factories I'd worked with here in the States had closed down or were yeah. about to close down. So, it was a pleasant surprise to see that. And remember how a little while ago I was talking about, you know, the boots weren't 100% what I wanted to be. There yeah. was like 20, 20%. Yeah. Well, Spain was able to fill that 20, 25%. So, so suddenly you were where you wanted to be and you could imagine the next step and ask him if it was possible. Exactly. So it was kind of like a refreshing thing to see, you know, that these, and these are talented skilled craftspeople i mean like they know what they're doing mm. and they have the t with which to do it right mm. so you know it, it was and early in our conversation we we spoke about having to change and having to pivot this was probably the biggest pivot that i had to do in my life let alone with a company because you know you, you don't know who's going to follow you you don't know who's going to have faith in you you don't know who's going to have confidence in you yeah and at the same time, you want to, as a business owner, you need to project security and you need to project a sense of confidence, uh, knowing that people are going to get a great quality product. In yep. this case, arguably, maybe, just maybe, an even better quality one than before. Mm. So this move came with a lot, of, a, a lot of risks, a lot of up and downs, a lot of negative thoughts, a lot of positive thoughts. And, and I've definitely been grilled left and right and continue to get grilled left and right, you know, almost every day on uh, things that I should have done differently or things that I shouldn't have done at all. I mean, you know, you should see the emails that I get. <laughs> but, yeah, um, it's amazing how many armchair experts there are. And, you know, yeah. what, what I really wish, you know, again, having been through all of this in the custom knife world, what I know is there's mm -hmm. armchair experts and there's armchair enthusiasts. And I would sure. like all the armchair experts in the world to remember Try and turn yourself back into an enthusiast. Be grateful <laughs> that people make the things that make you happy because you don't know how. Sure. And unless you learn yeah. how, you can only be an armchair enthusiast because once you're an expert, you're not an armchair expert. You're actually an expert. You can make it. So the, the distinction between the two groups is, is bigger than people want to admit, and I wish more people would remember the distinction. I completely agree with you there david <laughs> yeah it would make your day much easier because see what i really really liked about your website see here in australia we've got tech from bootlosophy doing great reviews and the I wonderful spoke. thing with youtube is even though there's video there's great audio and tech does great descriptions the yeah. great thing was you know when i went down the boot rabbit hole it was like okay i found these great youtube channels some people describe things well some people clearly just put in front of the camera well, text describing Parkhurst really well. And then I went to Andrew's website and went, oh, he's also described things well. And the website is totally accessible. So without meaning to, between tech in Perth and how Andrew's built the website, I as a blind guy am pretty confident that I understand what I'm ordering. Well, I'm, look, 
I'm glad I was able to able to provide that sense of confidence and stability for you. I mean, yeah, it's awesome. It, it's not easy buying a four hundred dollar pair of boots from somebody's website who you've never heard of, who yep. most people probably won't even end up seeing or meeting in their life. And yep. uh, yeah, I mean, it, you want to have that sense of security when you buy, right? Yep. So. I probably say too much on my website, but no, I, but it's I, awesome. And it's awesome for us, you know, enthusiasts. It means we don't have to bug you. My guess is it's more the, the armchair <laughs> experts who have to bug you than the armchair enthusiasts. <laughs> you, you got it. I'm sure you got a point there, man. It's, <laughs> there's a lot of what you're saying. There's a lot of truth. To it, that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm just grateful to be able to do this. I mean, and, and, and it wouldn't be possible without the help of my of my very loyal customers and like i know parkhurst is just me right like i'm a one-person company i've always been a one-person company like i manage the warehouse and inventory website social media here on my own but also like the finishing touches on the boots too like if there's heel pads that got to be cut and glued if there's sanding burnishing sewing you know any of that stuff that's got to be done i do that to every pair typically before i send them out to a customer so i do that right here in my warehouse i'm just looking at my bench right now but yeah, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that, you know, most people don't really know about and it's, and that's fine. Right. I mean, it's, mm. you know, it's just part of, part of the game, but, but yeah, it's been, it's been quite the ride. And then the relaunch ultimately was this past January. Right. Mm-hmm. And I would say things are off to a very, fortunately, a very good, strong start. It's much better than I thought it was going to be, to be perfectly honest. But at the end of the day, you know, like we're, we're able to make a better quality product. I'm able to work with people from the same company here in New York, plus in Spain. And you know, the, the interesting thing about Spain is that, and this might just be my individual circumstance. So, so, so take what I say with a grain of salt here. But the, the interesting thing to me about manufacturing my type of product in Spain is that everything is very close. And what I mean by that is, one of the leather tanneries that I work with through the factory, they're pretty much right across the street and down a little bit. And, and a yep. lot of the leather we use is it, the same concept as the North American leather industry in that a lot of the hides come from free range cattle that die, who, who die naturally or, or, they, or the leather comes as byproducts of the agricultural food industry. So actually ended up overlapping each other. <laughs> so mm. it was a very surprise to find that kind of cool, actually, in my opinion. But yeah, I mean, like, you know, you can have like, you know, the, the owner of the shoe manufacturing factory, like their sister might own the rubber, a rubber company where they manufacture rubber and yep. part of business is manufacturing custom soles and heels for the shoe factory. But yep. then aside from their best friend could own like a veg tan company that specializes in you know different types of vegetable tanning that's done in the same town in Spain. Yeah. Their main line of business, like their main line of business might be something like police belts or yep. or, or unholsters or but something like that. They've got a sideline that works so well for you. The classic yeah. example of this, I went to a fabulous lecture once by an English researcher and he was looking at Sheffield mm. in England, which was originally like a cutlery centre in England. Like most yeah. pocket knives and kitchen knives all around 
you know, the, the British Empire came from Sheffield. And the interesting thing he found when he dove into Sheffield is companies who made the same thing competed with each other. But you couldn't yep. all have experts on the small things. So the experts yep. bounced around between the specialist and bigger companies. And it was more collaborative than it was competitive. And it actually meant that they were more adaptable and made better products. And more often yep. than not, if someone went under, all the best people and skills went sideways to other companies in the city. And it was this model of industrialization that actually says proximity is actually critical to long-term success, you know, historically. It is, though. I mean, if mm. you look at manufacturing operations around the world, like there's there, there's a reason why, like, you know, Mexico is another shoemaking capital of the world really i would say italy they make you know they're mm. known for their, their clothing i mean you, you look at vietnam and thailand i mean their sneaker manufacturing capabilities yep, are it's huge yeah like and, and they have the labor for it they have the machinery they have the yep. investment yeah they have that you know for for many different reasons like we could uh, totally separate conversation that could be had about all of that but you know it comes down to the people it comes down to the place and it comes down to the quality of the product that's being produced, right? Mm. It's just that, you know, there's, there's different parts of the world that are, that are just set up to yeah, manufacture. to do things well. Yeah. And as long as it's, you know, I think most people would agree in, in that as long as it's a part of the world where the workers are being paid well and everything runs smoothly, then, you know, th then everything should work out at the end of the day. Like, I, I know, for example, like, um, you know, manufacturing in Spain, it's actually more expensive for me to manufacture in Spain than it was here in the States because the, the labor is more expensive there. The workers get paid better and they have more benefits yep. than a worker does here in the States. So, you know, I, I was okay making, and, and I would see that because like, you know, I, I, I pay the invoices, right? <laughs> I pay yep. the best. Yeah. So, but just talking to them and, you know, there's, there's more time off there's more health benefits and in, in, in items over there and you know there's different backgrounds on where all those things originated from too right yep but you know for me that was important as well you know knowing that you know it's quality products being made and and people are uh people are into what they're doing as well yeah. like like doing this so you know you, you bring all these different things together and i and, and i think that's ultimately it could be an indication of a recipe for success. Absolutely. And I think that's the key thing is that anywhere you can get all these people together who recognize through collaboration, we can all do better than we can do in isolation or in direct competition. It's such a powerful yeah. idea to work together. Now, I'd like to go down a bit of a boot nerd path here because yeah. you use some remarkable leathers and you know listeners oh. I, i'm working out what my next purchase from andrew is going to be so what you're going to hear now is me working out which thing to pick next so <laughs> andrew designed a mock toe boot called the niagara and from what i can work out you've got three different leathers at the moment you've got your mahogany <laughs> leather which is essentially chrome tan but stuffed with oil so a bit like chrome xl yep. you've you've got the cocoa color which sounds like it's an oiled new buck was how I would take the description. And then the henna color, what's the henna color? How, what's the texture of that like? So that, so it was the mocha oil tan, which is actually a smooth grain, full grain. I mean, like all, all of them are full grain leathers, but okay. um, 
more of a smooth grain, more consistent grain leather. And the color is more consistent all throughout too. So Okay. So uh, it does doesn't have a pull up effect like the mahogany one would. Not really, no. Okay. No, that the oil tan one is more meant for like a consistency steak um okay. than having, you know, try to keep something with a consistent base of color, but something that will still patina over time. Yep. But yeah, there's not really any pull up to it. But the the henna leather. Again, it's another full grain. It's a smooth, uh, smooth grain leather as well. That one has a little bit of a distressed look to it. It has a matte finish. So you're going to see hints of brown, like dark brown, reddish kind of come through. It's actually more of a medium brown reddish, I would say. But, but that one is is meant to look more rugged. If if you take a boot and you scratch that one up a lot versus scratching up the mocha oil tan or maybe another more consistent leather, um, you're going to notice that the the wear effect on the the weathered henna is going to be more prominent than perhaps other leathers, maybe depending on you know what you do to it, right? Okay. But all of those leathers, like the the mahogany, the weathered henna, the mocha oil, the uh, veg retan. I mean, these were part of the new batch of you know the new experiment. Not not experimenting, but they're they're the next stage in development. The, right like these are leathers that we're making from custom color palettes like in-house in our spanish tannery and you know it's it's been great working with them because the quality is really really up there and you know the cost to make them is the same as as the stuff you know we're buying in the states but having said that i do still have a good amount of leather on order from uh, the tanneries here in the states as well that we'll be making boots from here too. You've just so, now got two choices. You've got a chance to be a bit more creative and still support local and support Spain, where they've got this amazing industry where people love what they do and have everything in the town that you need. So it's the best of both yes. worlds. It sounds like to me. It feels like the best of both worlds. Yeah, I, I would. I would say that we have an. Op- I have an opportunity to be more creative and and coming up with like my own leather colorways and finishes and stuff like which is cool like i'm very you know very humbled and grateful to have this type of opportunity yeah but you know just going back to kind of like just real quick like what we were talking about like during covid is you know one of the biggest things was the supply chain crisis in in the united states here In, in spain the way it's set up is like everything is so close and everything is is right there like in the U.S., we would have to order, there's maybe like 20, 25 different components sometimes that go into a boot, a single pair of boots. Mm. And oftentimes, those would end up coming from like a dozen or a dozen and a half different suppliers. Whereas like in Spain, you know, you got you got like five or six companies that produce all of it for you, mm. like in the same town or within the same like tri-county or tri-town area. Mm. So this chain is there and that was the biggest thing that would have you know tanked my company to be quite frank yeah uh, because we lost the supply chain in in this country for this particular type of product for a while you know to the yeah. point where only like bigger companies like again like i'm really really small right so like i'm i'm definitely not in a position to weather a storm like that then you know maybe a bigger company would be so mm. for me a move that was necessary and imperative so yeah but it's great to have like 
not only is the supply chain so much more consolidated, but we also have the opportunity to be, I don't know, maybe somewhat unique or somewhat different, a little bit more creative than than before. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of it's becoming the best of both worlds, I would say. Yeah. And again, it's the fact that you're maintaining your adaptability going, well, hang on, I can buy from both. In America, I can't probably order yep. enough to ask for a specific color. But in Spain, they're more used to dealing with smaller companies and being open to doing smaller batches. So as long as I ask the right people to work on the right things with me, there's a good chance sure. I can get a yes. Well, yeah. And I mean, that's a good – I mean, the, fir the first half of what you said is also something I wanted to echo um, in that, you know, the, the idea of ordering enough, right? So, like, for me, you know, one of the things that I saw happen to a couple of my sub couple of my suppliers early on who went out of business is that – their clients, they they couldn't order like a minimum order quantity that that supplier would need to su sustain the cost of running production for an individual mm -hmm. client. What they ended up doing was taking smaller orders, which costed them more money. The client got their product, but the supplier, actually the manufacturer, ended up losing money. Yeah. So breaking even, which in either case, either one of those scenarios is bad. Yeah, because inevitably, um, once someone's gone in that chain, the whole chain falls to bits. It has to be a, exactly. a plus-sum game way of doing business. Exactly. You know, so I, I saw at that point, like, you know, I didn't, you know, if, if I go to if I go to one of the one of the big suppliers and I say, you know, I, you know, I, I need a really small amount of leather, right? Mm. And I know that's going to be a burden on them to produce. And in some cases, they'll just flat out tell you no, and they should because yeah. it's it's. Is something that's ultimately going to end up hurting them. Yep. Because I also have, a, as a manufacturer, I have a responsibility to my suppliers when I give them business to make sure that I give them something that they can actually benefit from, mm. you know, as a, taking a, a, an order for like five or 10 hides. Like that's not going to do anybody anything really. Mm. It's this sense of, I, I try to have this sense of community in that way when looking out for my fellow business partners because. You know, I view my manufacturers and my suppliers as my partners as well, because let's face it, I mean, without them and without my customers, like Parkhurst would be dead and yeah. it wouldn't be at the point it's at now. And it's important that they all be recognized and acknowledged here, too. And this is this thing of seeing the big picture, and I think you've just summed that up beautifully, is that whatever your dream is to achieve, there's going to be people on both sides of your dream, people who feed into what you do and people who directly benefit from buying the thing you made or the surface you created. And if you can get a balance between those two sides, the things that feed in and the service or product that people buy – your chance of hmm. success goes up and your chance of being surrounded by other people who are happy and doing okay because of that broad conception. Like we have to understand things in terms of the, the dynamic system and where possible contribute to the dynamic yeah. system. Sure. And it's much yeah. easier to walk around the dynamic system in an awesome pair of boots. It is. <laughs> <laughs> much easier. See, see, I got us back on track. Final <laughs> nerd question from me. I'm a size sure. nine in the Allen. Should I stay yep. at a nine in the Niagara? Does it fit any different? Yeah. I mean, if, if the nine fits you fine in the 602, on the Niagara, I would be suggesting a nine as well. Difference you're going to notice is that there's like one square millimeter more of volume in the toe box 
particularly in the pinky toe, small toe area for the neck and for the Elmwood models. Yep. In my experience, it hasn't, it hasn't been enough to warrant a size change where like, I would say to you, well, well, if you took a nine in the 602, you'd be an eight and a half in the 602. Um, It it wouldn't be like, there, there hasn't really been any data that yet um so yeah i would say you know as long as you're comfortable with just a little bit of extra room in the toe box you're going to be fine taking the same size this is great to know and you know listeners when you go down the boot rabbit hole you'll discover these are the questions you send in emails you go these are the things i own in other brands i haven't bought your brand yet and you know we line up against other brands and then we you know go out the back and we howl at the moon and dance around in circles (laughs) and then we take a rough guess at what size we are (laughs) <laughs> that that pretty much sums it up to a T. <laughs> this is why we rely on people like Andrew because he's done the dancing in you know, under the moon for us because he actually has data. And as we found out at the <laughs> beginning, he's good with maths oh and data. So he goes, "Well, hundred people told me it fits the same." And we go, I "Yes, have, I have so much data. It is, um, it's crazy. I mean, it, it's it's you know, someone asked me like, what's it like trying to fit people?" And I told them. It's just one big puzzle. Yeah, you, you just you piece into the hole in which it fits, yep. right? To the right space, and you know sometimes there might be a bump in the road. That piece might be too big, or that piece might be too small, or the hole yep. might be too big. Well, you know, it just doesn't. It just it depends, right? So you know, I I designed all my all my lasts, so you know I I I have a pretty good idea of how they're going to fit. But having said that, like everybody's foot is different. Like yeah. a lot of people have different types. You got low volume, high volume feet. You got people with high in steps, low in steps, narrow, wide, you know, wide at the toes and narrow at the heel or narrow in the arch or wide in the arch and narrow in the toes, which actually that last one's kind of uncommon, but I have seen it before. But, you know, it's I, I sit kind of in this position of, of privilege almost for collecting all for being able to collect all this data in the form of selling the boots to customers and getting their feedback, you know, them giving up their time and effort to give me, you know, feedback on how the boots fit them and their their type of foot. And I've spent almost the past nearly five years compiling that data and surmising it and and trying to put it on my website in a fashion that almost everybody could relate to. But again, you know, there's, there's different, there's different foot types out there and there are going to be people who fall, fall in between the cracks of size and guidance. And, um, and that's okay because, you know, for some people it's a half size down from sneaker works for them. Other people, it's a full size down from sneaker that works for them. Um, You know, a big thing that helps in this in this process is is having a Brannock measurement, but also having an accurate Brannock measurement too. You know, half size down from Brannock for standard medium width foot. You know, if you're narrow, low volume, you know, really skinny, thin ankles. In my boots, you're going to want to go a full size down from Brannock. If you're a wider side, you might want to suggest taking your Brannock size or still going down a half size. From your brandic because the toe box in my last is a single e width at its peak anyways yep so most people who think they need a wide width from me they'll end up Don't. buying a wide have mm. them but they mm. exchange, you're right, they end up exchanging them for a regular width mm. um because 
toe box. So if you can wiggle your but, toes, then you have happy feet. That's the rule. Yeah, I mean, it, you you want to be able to wiggle them, but you also want to have a comfortably snug fit because yep. you want some sort of snugness because that means the boots are providing you support in some areas. Mm. If you have something that's too loose or too floppy in the toe box or in the arch, then you're not really going to get too much support. But from the boots, but you know, th- those people, chances are their foot are their feet are narrow and low volume, anyways, and. And nine out of 10 of my customers who have those characteristics most often use inserts or lifts or tongue pads or, or something. To fill it up that. somehow. Yep. So. so listeners, now you can really hear that whatever thing you decide is interesting, you can go down a path of more and more detail and still have to rely on talking to the expert who designed the thing you're buying. So if in doubt, if you go down the boot rabbit hole, write to the person who created the last, who can give you more information because they have helped so many customers before you. It is just the best way to get the help you need. That's a great piece of advice. <laughs> yeah. Mileage varies, but it's yeah. it's pretty good general guidance. And you can always write and ask. Sure. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I can always be reached through email. So info at parkcursebrand.com. So Always happy to chat about sizing there. Run through any type of sizing and different brands you may have. Okay, Andrew, last question I normally ask people, and I figure it better be time to ask the last question. Otherwise, you and I will just talk nerdy stuff, and you won't go to sleep, and I won't do work, and that's bad. <laughs> Is there a question you wished I'd asked you? Oh, gosh. You know what? I don't know, man. I I honestly think it pretty much covered all the major bases, David. Yeah, I mean, I, I not really a question, but I, I guess one comment i would i would say is um thank you to everybody thank you to your audience to your listeners to listening to me rant for the past i don't know what are we at hour yeah it's an hour but that's about normal for blind insights and there was no Um, ranting at no point we were jumping up and down on a chair it's all good but but i would like to say thank you and i I don't know yeah I, i would like to say thank you to just my my customers my my manufacturing partners, my suppliers, and my my audience and my fans, my friends, my family. Because the truth of the matter is, I mean, yes, everyone you know says, yeah, I run Parkhurst on my own here. I'm that small, <laughs> but the real credit it it does go to my customers, the factories, the suppliers I work with, my fans, the audience, friends, families of myself and the brand because they've all, in some form or another, taken a chance on me, right? And they've taken a chance on Parkhurst. They've put their confidence in me. They've put their confidence in what I'm doing. They've they've been loyal. And really, that's that's all you could ask for, right? When running a company that's achieved, you know, a small level of success here. And, um, you know, just a, a huge thank you to to all of them, everybody, both past and present, especially the factory here in Western New York who who didn't make it through. You know, I, I loved everyone there who I work with, but also, you know, I'm looking forward to the, the next steps with Parkhurst. You know, I, I'm really grateful to be working with everybody with whom I work now and developing new relationships and meeting new customers. And um, yeah, it's been one wild ride, that's for sure. It's been a great one uh, so far and um, I'm looking forward to the next thing. So, you know, thank you to everybody. Thank you very much, Andrew, for being a guest today. And listeners, if you want to go down the boot rabbit hole, 
my advice is start with Parkhurst because then we can compare boots. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Blind Insights. If the ideas of this episode have inspired you, please consider subscribing and sharing with your friends. Do them a favour so we can make a better informed and connected world. Thank you to Solstice Podcasting for use of their studio. If you're interested in making your own podcast, find out more at solsticepodcasting.com.au.